My name is Feza. I was born a Muslim in Turkey. Uh, first, I met with Jesus. Uh, the elder woman was talking about the Quran, and I heard his name, the Jesus. But uh, Jesus was the prophet Jesus in Islam. And then he very touched my heart, and then I chose him like uh, my boyfriend. And uh, the first, when I was six years older, I sexually abused uh, with 16 years the girl. It really pushed me to involve the men, but the men were worse than women. They used all my heart, all my feeling, my money, my body. Nobody loved me. I was loving them, but I never received any love. And I was looking for love, where is the love in the world? I couldn't find it. I married an uh, Islamic, very radical Islamic, from Algerian guy, and Islamic rules. And he was completely like abusing me, abusing me verbal, the sexual, physical. Uh, I was feeling I'm in just darkness, just darkness. Uh, what he has done to me, I became mentally sick. I started to dig all the garbage, throwing the garbage, digging the, all the garbage, and obsessively checking the, all the closet. One day I find myself sitting next to the toilet and digging all dirty toilet paper baskets, putting my face, smelling them, and flowing, and some guy laughing and crying, and then I just say to myself, what happened to Faza? What happened to you? And I went to the living room and then I took the Quran, I just ripped it up. And I decided to kill my husband because I couldn't get out this guy married. This married was just violent sex and Allah. And I poisoned the food. I put kitchen and he comes and he sex with me, and I say to him, I'm going to kill you tonight. I'm going to kill you and kill myself. There is a foot, and he scared, and he loved me. After a few days, my boss sent me to guy, and he saw me, and then he said, what happened to your face all? You look terrible. I told all story and I show him all marks on my body what my husband has done and he cried and he said to me I will give you the books the bible only Jesus can wipe your tears only Jesus can save your life only Jesus can heal you and I believe that I took bible came to home and I opened the first page was came the Isaiah 43, he says, do not fear, do not fear, I redeem it. I call you by your name, you are mine. The you are mine is thousand times echoed in my mind. And I have been waiting all my life to someone say to me, you are mine, Feza. Nobody said to me. And I wanted all my life to Say someone, I am belong you.
no one was. And I just asked who you are, who you are, and saying to me, you are my father, who you are. And I just noticed he was God. God said to me, you are my father. Now God used me to everywhere, talking about the Jesus, who is the Jesus, especially all the Muslims. I spend all my time for the Muslims to saying them, there is no Allah, the Muhammad is the fake prophet. There is no other way. There is only one way, this is the Jesus. There is only one door, Jesus. There is only one true, He's Jesus. There is no Allah. His name is Yahweh. And Yahweh is so pure and so lovely. God is, God is so love and He loves us. And I love Him. And I'm just crying for all the lost people because they, ha they I don't know when they are gonna meet with God. But I'm gonna keep working on Muslims because God made me a fisherman. I'm the fisherman for Muslims. So thank you so much, God, for that. Thank you so much you using me. I love you, God. I love you, Jesus. I love you. I just, I love you. No fear anymore in my life. I love you. I love you, Jesus. Thank you so much also. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to use me being here and telling my story. If you have a Bible in book or app form, uh, would you take it out, please? Turn with me to the book of Esther. Esther. Uh, we are continuing on today with our series called Story. We've been looking at stories of individuals, men and women, found in the Old Testament. And as I said, we are looking at Esther's story today. So I uh, encourage you to find that, follow along with us. Today's particular message is going to feel a little bit different uh, because I'm going to attempt to walk through all 10 chapters of Esther. Sometimes I have a difficult time finishing one verse or a series of verses, and so doing 10 chapters, it's going to feel a little, a little bit like, a, I guess, a history lesson, maybe even a, a little like a lecture, and I don't want to have that vibe, but it may kind of lean that way, so I'm going to try to have you stick with me and make sure your eyes don't glaze over, all right? So we're going to walk through it. I'm going to hit a bunch of stuff. We're going to show a lot of text on, uh, on the screen, but you'll want to record and note some of them, especially in light of your community groups this week and so on and so forth, all right? Let me pray, then we'll get into it. Uh, Jesus, guide us now, I pray, by your Spirit. Guide us by your Spirit to the things that we need to see. I thank you for this story. Thank you for this series. I thank you for the things that you have taught us and will continue to teach us. Further us along, I pray, in our journey with you, regardless of where we start today. Further us along. Continue us to places by your prompting where we need to go. 
so that we would be strengthened um, and we would be able to walk out of here changed a little bit more into that which you have created us to be changed into. Use me in spite of me. I need your help. I need your strength. And I need to be used by you because I am a man most fallible. So help me today and use me for the sake of your kingdom, not mine, your kingdom for your glory, not mine, and for our joy. And I pray for these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. I stopped titling my messages a number of years ago because I'm not very creative. And so I stopped doing it. But if I were to begin titling my messages with today's message, I would probably title it something like, When God is Hidden. And the reason why I would title it with something like that is because the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible, except it depends on how you translate a verse in the Song of Songs, Song of Songs or Song of, so Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. Uh, the only book in the Bible that never mentions the name God in it, not a once. No mention of Lord, God, He, or anything like that. So the question I think that should be asked is, why is the book of Esther in this thing? Right? Why is the book of Esther in the Bible of all things? Why does God inspire a book that never mentions Him at all? It's sort of like writing a, an autobiography and never mentioning yourself. You know what I mean? You think about that as you drive home. It doesn't make any sense. So why is it here? And does it matter? Does it matter that God is not mentioned at all in a book in the Bible? Well, I would suggest to you that it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter that God is not mentioned specifically in the book of Esther because in spite of never being mentioned, God still proves to be the hero of Esther's story. I hope to prove that to you. With Esther revealing much about God's providential care and protection of his people in light of his promises that he has made to them. But in addition to that, one of the beauties of the book of Esther is that it challenges us. It challenges us to see God and respond faithfully in spite of his perceived invisibility. Because there are times, aren't there, in our lives where God does seem hidden and invisible and we wonder why he doesn't say anything and he doesn't seem to be moving and he doesn't seem to be active and he doesn't seem to be present. So I think having a book that doesn't mention God yet challenges us to see God because he's all in it is a good thing. I think it's a beautiful thing and necessary thing and I think something that I think will be encouraging to us. So let me share Esther's story. Like I said, going to go through all 10 chapters and then I'll make some application points on the back end. And hopefully it'll be encouraging to you. As we parachute into chapter 1, drop right into chapter 1, we drop into a time in the history of the world that is ruled by the Persians. The Persian Empire, if you know anything about that particular time in the history of the world, the Persian Empire was ushered in by someone named Cyrus the Great, who who began ruling the Persian Empire in 539 BC, overtaking the great whore that was the Babylonians. You know that particular chapter in the history of the world? The Persian Empire at this stage was ruled by a king named Ashishwaras or Ashishharas, or as he is better known by his Greek name, 
King Xerxes. He's the grandson of Cyrus the Great. The Persians dominated the Middle Eastern world. They had an empire that uh, existed or stretched, a better way of putting it, from modern-day Libya to Pakistan. It was made up of 127 provinces, had about 50 million people in it, and an army of a million soldiers. The Persian Empire lasted about 200 years and was later replaced by the Greeks under Alexander the Great and then after that the Romans. If you've seen the movie 300, the movie 300 told the story of the 300 Spartans who fought against these very same Persians. Xerxes, history records, had countless battles with the Greeks. I'm going to touch upon one of them in a couple of minutes. But where are the Jewish people at this time? Well, the Jewish people are interwoven with the Persian Empire in it. Uh, they obviously are ruled by the Persians, but they have a measure of freedom, but they live in this sort of period of flux. After 70 years of captivity under the Babylonians, Cyrus the Great gave them some measure of freedom, allowing them to return to their land. Some of them did, going back to Jerusalem. Yeah, you can read about some of that in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, books that precede, lead up to the book of Esther, and some of them did, but many of them still, as we get into this particular book, still live in exile, they still live in dispersion, and they are looked upon with great suspicion by, by the Persians, with the threat of harm ever present. We'll see that as we get later on into the book of Esther, as we will see it surfaces here. Esther opens in chapter 1 with Xerxes calling for a six-month summit, 180-day summit, in the capital city of Susa. History records this summit that we see here in chapter 1 took place in 483 BC. Now, what's taking place in this summit? It's a war strategy session. 127 provinces, they had governors, and they were brought together under Xerxes for a 180-day uh, strategy session in the lead-up to a battle against the Greeks. So six months pulled together in Susa leading up to that period of time. Again, history records that, that takes place in 483 BC. At the end of this particular six-month period, Xerxes wants to show off and he has a seven-day feast where he shows the glory of his empire. Think seven-day drunken orgy. Seven days where they party after the six months of work and they're about to go and battle against the Greeks. A part of this seven-day ceremony had the queen, a lady named Vashti, putting on a feast exclusive just for the women. At the end of this seven-day period, Xerxes, in a very drunken, blitzed state, says, bring me my wife. She's pleasant to look at, and I want to show her off. Try that sometime. Just, just try that sometime. See how that goes for you. Vashti, Vashti resists and she doesn't come. You go, girl, right? She just doesn't come, right? More power to you. She doesn't listen to what her husband has requested, but Xerxes is ticked. In his mind, there, this is nothing less than an act of insubordination. But more than that, he, along with his cronies, are worried. 
and they're worried that this act by the queen would get out and all of the women in his empire, in this particular empire, would hear about it and some sort of woman's liberation movement would take place. And they're worried about it. And so what do they do? They come up with this great plan. Let's sequester and remove the queen. Number two, let's sign an edict. Let's sign a law that we will send out to all 127 provinces, making it mandated, making it law that every man is the master of his house. You can read that in verse 22 of chapter 1. Great idea. Because women love this kind of stuff, right? Right? I mean, and what I've learned over time is that it's almost a guarantee of marital bliss if you mandate things like this. Like, it just works out really well. Like, more, more, more. Send out more edicts. This would be fantastic. No, it doesn't happen. All right? It doesn't happen. But this is what they're trying to do. This is the kind of rationale that Xerxes has. And just also need to let you know, Xerxes was renowned for his temper. Renowned. History records it. For example, talked about that battle that he's about to enter against the Greeks. We see recorded for us that just a, a year after this event, here in chapter 1, in order for his army to march from Turkey into Greece, he orders that bridges be built across a narrow piece of land between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Excuse me, a narrow piece of water between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. The bridges, however, that he had asked to be built were destroyed in a storm before the troops were able to use them. Xerxes was so furious that he gathered all the engineers together and chopped their heads off. But he's not done. He's just getting started. He was also furious with the water. As Herodotus, the Greek historian, records, he sends soldiers into the water with whips, demanding that they, that they lash the ocean 300 times for its insubordination. Makes sense. Right? But he's not yet done. In addition to that, what's also recorded is that he then had soldiers throw shackles into the water to bind the water and then have them enter the water to stab the waves with red-hot irons. All righty. Love to take a road trip of that guy. But that's him. Angry, furious, renowned for his temper, back to Esther. Sometime later, perhaps as long as four years later, which included a two-year unsuccessful invasion of Greece that I just spoke of, Xerxes turns back his attention to the task of replacing Vashti. His minions again come up with a plan. Here's what we should do, O king. Let's go out to our empire and gather as many beautiful virgins as we can. We'll bring in this big group of beautiful virgins. We will prepare them and then we will bring them in front of you. You choose the one you like most and raise her up as queen. Surprise, surprise, Xerxes thinks this is a great idea. And so that's, thus becomes, thus becomes or this becomes a plan. It's a, an idea that is put into motion. And so a harem of beautiful virgins is gathered with one of them being a young woman named Esther. What do we know about Esther. Well, for starters, she's not Persian, she's Jewish. 
But at this stage, she's keeping this fact to herself and going by her exile named Hadassah instead. Keep in mind again, like I said in the intro, anti-Semitism is rampant. Second, she's an orphan living in Susa, but now under the guardianship of her older cousin Mordecai. And third, as you could probably deduce, she's gorgeous. All of this is wrapped up in verse 7 of chapter 2 where we read, Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So they gather. They gather all of the virgins and they begin preparation. The Jewish historian Josephus records that Esther is whittled down to a group of 400. And after a 12-month preparation and beautification period is presented before the king. Yes, 12 months. 12 months. 12 months. Six months getting your skin just right. Smooth and blemish-free. Six months. Six months making sure that your smell is just right. Six months. Take it for what it's worth. Twelve months. In addition to this, there was training of sorts on how to handle yourself in the royal court. How to handle yourself in the presence of the king and conduct yourself with proper etiquette. Esther obviously makes a great impression and she wins the pageant and she is selected as queen. Think about that. An exiled, obscure, conquered Jewish orphan is exalted to the highest position a woman could have in in the entire world at this time. We read this in verses 17 and 18 of Esther 2. The king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Immediately thereafter, Uh, No, before I get to that, let me make sure that I share this as well. While this is going on, we need to smash cut to Mordecai. Remember, Esther's been taken away from Mordecai. Just taken away. His, His daughter, his adopted daughter is gone. But while this is going on, we can smash cut to Mordecai and he is hanging out in the king's gate, which is sort of the court of the day, a court where you could stand and be near the palace. He's there trying to stay abreast of the goings-on of his adopted daughter. But while he is there, he overhears a plot against the king that two individuals are attempting to put into motion. He overhears them talking. He gets word through a servant to go to queen Esther to tell her husband what's about to take place the word goes to Esther Esther gets word to her husband they investigate the plot is abated and the plotters are hanged just keep that event in mind we can read about it in chapter 2 the Persians kept records of everything it's one of the reasons why we know so much about their history this particular event and Mordecai's role in it is chronicled as well 
Now, immediately thereafter, as we get into chapter 3, we're introduced to a man named Haman, who serves in this story as the quintessential antagonist. What do we know about this cowboy? A couple things that are really important. First, he ranks second to Xerxes in power. Number two. Number two guy in the whole empire. Second, really important to the story, he's an Amalekite. Why is that important? Well, if you know anything about the history of the Jewish people, when they came out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, the first enemy they encounter is the Amalekites. That particular battle that takes place, recorded for us in the book of Exodus, is the one where Moses arms are held up by his two friends while he sits on a rock and his staff overhand and they defeat the Amalekites. But not only is Haman an Amalekite, he's an Agagite. Now what is that? Well, a couple things. Number one, he comes from royal heritage or lineage. He is a descendant of King Agag. Now who is King Agag? He was a king of the Amalekites But the king that Samuel, the prophet Samuel, hacked to pieces in 1 Samuel chapter 15. The Persians knew their history. Haman knew his history. Haman would have known this. Haman would have known what happened to that king in his line. And as the result, I think we can assume he would have hated the Jewish people. He's an Amalekite. He's an Agagite. What else do we need to know about him? He was a narcissist, narcissist. Haman loved Haman. He really loved Haman. He thought about Haman first and foremost. He loved Haman. And tied into this and building into this, I am sure, Xerxes had mandated that all were to bow down to Haman when he passed by. And everyone did except for one individual. And that one individual was Mordecai. And we read this in chapter 3. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. In his fury, what Haman does is he devises a plot where he would not only rid the world of Mordecai, but he would rid the world of all Jewish people. And so what he does is he approaches the king. And he says, King, here's the deal, man. There are some people living in your empire that are nothing but trouble. They got their own laws. They got their own decrees. They live by their own ways. And they're going to prove to be an issue to us going forward. We should get rid of every single one of them. Xerxes thinks, great idea. Not only does he think it's a great idea, he finances this endeavor gives a ton of money towards the endeavor, but not only does he do this, he signs an edict, signed, sealed, and delivered to all 127 provinces that this is to come to pass, that all the Jewish people living in our empire should be annihilated, an absolute genocide should take place. Let's do it, he says to Haman. Haman leaves from there, and after months of casting something called poor, poor are lots, Think craps, think dice, whatever you want to think. They spend a number of months, Haman does with his cronies with him, to pick a specific date where this genocide should take place. What date do they come up with? March 7th, 473 B.C. Haman, however, planned on taking care of Mordecai personally, and he had 75-foot gallows built in his house where he would hang him on that fateful day. Plan genocide of the Jewish people. 
certainly every single one of us when we consider that would just include this with all other planned genocides of the Jewish people over the course of our history. It is interesting, is it not? Knowing what we know about the role the Jewish people play in God's story. I mean, Jesus himself saying to the woman at the well, salvation comes from the Jews, knowing what we read in places like Romans 11 about the Jewish people, to say nothing about the mention of them in the book of Revelation, how often throughout the ages their obliteration has been attempted. We see another example here. When you consider it all, it's hard not to consider that something otherworldly is at hand, something satanic even, is it not? I mean, why are they so focused on? Here and years, before and years after, why are they so focused on? And when you think about Haman himself, doesn't this pride-filled second-in-charge Haman remind you of any angelic figure that preceded him? Doesn't John write that before the Antichrist comes, many Antichrists will come beforehand? And what about Esther in relationship to Haman? What about her, Esther, a virgin, spotless, blemish-free, without wrinkle? Does she remind you of any other bride? Consider what Paul writes of the church, in this case, the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when he writes, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. It, it should cause us to at least pause and wonder what's at hand in this story of Esther we got to get back to it. Mordecai hears about the edict. Edict goes out. Mordecai hears about it. And in a time of great bitter mourning, he sends word to Esther. And he encourages, implores Esther, Esther, you've got to go talk to the king and you have to have the king re reconsider the plan. Now, seems like a natural request, seems like a simple request, but not so much. For in Persia, no one, including the queen, went before the king without a personal invitation. Anybody who ventured in the presence of the king without being invited could be killed on the spot. By doing so, Esther would not only be breaking royal protocol, she would be risking her life. So she resists Mordecai's first ask. Understanding what we do about Xerxes, this is an understandable response, I think. I mean, the dude tried to beat up oceans. Okay, so I think we get, maybe I won't do that. To paraphrase, Morde paraphrase, paraphrase Mordecai in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, look, Esther, you may be killed if you do go before the king, but you'll certainly be dead if you don't. They're going to find out one day that you're Jewish and they will kill you too. Don't think you're going to escape. And then he adds this in verse 14 of chapter 4. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. This is a beautiful text. 
This is a beautiful text because what Mordecai says in it is he declares the wonderful confidence he has in the promises and covenant of God to bless, sustain, and preserve his people. Why did he think that? Because God promised that he would. But then he adds this, which is a sweet, sweet statement and probably the best known verse coming out of Esther. He says in the second part of verse 14, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Please hear what Mordecai is saying. On one hand, he affirms God's sovereignty. But on the other, he states that Esther can perish with many others with her if she doesn't act. In the building of our theology and thinking regarding God's sovereign providence, you must have room for both of these truths. Because both are true. God will still act. If you don't do anything, God will still act. You may die, but perhaps you're being raised for times such as this. Both are true. The reason why I bring this up is when we start talking about God's sovereignty, we have such a tendency to want to pick one side or the other. And we make ourselves look foolish. Both are true. God's in control. God's going to fulfill his promises. Doesn't matter what I do. No, it does. Perhaps you've been raised for a time such as this. Oh, but God's in control. Uh Uh-huh. And maybe you've been raised for such a time as this. Both true, both necessarily so. It does cause us to explode in our mind at times, which isn't a bad thing, because it reminds us that we're God, not God, and He is. And we need to wrestle with this as we build our theology and thinking regarding it. Esther relents and she responds this way in verse 16 Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Let's fast forward a little bit. After the three-day fast, Esther approaches the king, curries his favor, invites him and Haman to a banquet where she plans to reveal that the plot Haman has devised includes her too. Remember, she still hasn't revealed that she is Jewish. What stands out, if you've read the book of Esther, is that first feast takes place, right? King comes, Haman comes. King is absolutely enraptured with Esther and says, I'll give you anything, up to half of my kingdom. Whatever you want, tell me it's yours. Everything's set in place. Haman's there. Xerxes there. Feast. And what does Esther say at this first feast, however? All I want right now is for you to come back tomorrow. And I'm going to put on a second feast. And at that time, O king, I will let you know what I want. Now, the question that should bug us when we read through the book of Esther is, why does she do that? I mean, why does she have two feasts? Why does she wait? Why does she take a 24-hour break in sharing what she wants to share with Xerxes? I mean, it's kind of weird, but for whatever reason, in her mind, the timing wasn't right. Why not? Well, the answer is found in another smash cut. 
What's the smash cut? Where do we need to go from here? Well, in the evening, between the two banquets, banquets, Xerxes can't sleep. And so he asks a servant to read through some of the chronicles of the kingdom. The servant just so happens to read the account of Mordecai revealing the assassination plot against the king. Xerxes asks, hey, what have we done for that guy? Have we rewarded him yet? The reader says, no, we haven't done that. Well, man, we need, to, we need to reward him. At that time, in the middle of the night, Xerxes looks up, and who does he see in the courtyard? Haman. Haman just walking around. So he calls Haman in. He says, Haman, what would you do for the individual that the king wants to honor? Haman, Mr. Loves Himself, he's thinking, this is about me, man. This is fantastic. Because Haman's fired up. If you've read the story, Haman's fired up because he's invited to a second banquet with the queen. He's like, man, I'm all that, man. So he says, king, here's what I'd do. Get the royal robes, man. Put them on his back. i get a crown, put it on his head. i get the royal horse. Get the royal horse, put him on the royal horse, and then I'd have someone lead him around the city of Susa for a day. Xerxes goes, great idea. That's a great idea. That's what we're going to do for Mordecai, and I want you to lead him around. (laughs) It's awesome. You can almost just see when you read the story, just humiliation and fury and anger and confusion coming down on Haman, but that's what takes place, and he has to do what he has to do. He has no choice. The king has mandated it, so he leads this parade for Mordecai, Through the city. Now, when this whole disgraceful event is over, he goes home looking for comfort from his family and friends, but he doesn't find it. Instead, this is what he hears If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. What does that mean? Here's what's being told to uh, to Haman. If Mordecai is being honored by the king and he's Jewish and you're trying to remove all the Jewish people, then you're in trouble. You're playing for the wrong team. Haman is utterly confused. But he's still got to go to that party. Remember that party? Second feast. So what do we have? First feast, middle of the night, can't sleep. Morning, perhaps early afternoon, escort Mordecai around Susa. Now it's the second evening. Second evening comes, feast, Haman, Xerxes, Esther. Xerxes says to Esther yet again, what do you want? I'll give up to half of my kingdom to you. This time, she responds right away and says this. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Here is what Esther is saying in short order. O king, you've signed an edict to annihilate all Jews, and sweetie, I'm Jewish. Imagine what Haman's thinking. The queen can't be Jewish too, can she? Xerxes, 
is ticked. He couldn't believe what he was hearing, absolutely furious, and he asked this question. Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And with her hand pointed at Haman, Esther says, the foe and the enemy is the wicked Haman. Xerxes is ticked enough to shackle an ocean, and so he goes for a walk to try to get kind of head in order. See, here's here's what happened. Haman not only misrepresented the Jewish people and what they're all about, but he made him sign into law an edict that would kill his wife. He's ticked. He's ticked. While he's out taking a walk, Haman's begging for his life. He's stayed behind, and he's literally throwing himself at the feet of Esther, who's reclining on a couch. Xerxes comes back from the walk, but he doesn't think that Haman is begging for his life. He thinks Haman is assaulting his wife. Not good. Instantly has him arrested, taken by royal guards to be executed, and how do they kill him? They hang him in the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. Turnabout's a bummer. What a difference a day makes. The king then instructs, take all of his property, give it to the queen. The queen in turn gives it to Mordecai, with the king exalting Mordecai as Haman's replacement. Mordecai became to the king of Persia like Daniel had been to the king of Babylon and Joseph to the pharaoh in Egypt. But there's still an issue, right? What's Mordecai going to do about the decree to kill the Jews? Because, as I have said, once a king made a decree, it couldn't be rescinded. And so, with the king's full support, Mordecai issues another decree telling the Persians, you don't have to do it. You can do it because there's already an edict, but you don't have to do it. If you don't do it, you're not breaking the law. But because there was such great anti-Semitism in the kingdom, some would still want to do it. And so what Mordecai also does in this edict, fully supported by the king, is he allows and encourages the Jewish people to become fully prepared and defend themselves. The day came. Doomsday, March 7th, 473 BC, and attacks did happen. And the Jews did defend themselves, and there were deaths. Over 75,000 Persians were slain on that day. It was a day to remember, but not for the reasons Haman had thought. That great day, March 7th, 473 BC, established a festival that Jewish people continue to celebrate today the feast of Purim. Purim coming from the Hebrew word for lots. Poor because Haman had cast lots to determine the day on which he would exterminate the Jews. It's a feast of triumph, celebrating the care and protection of God for his people. It's a feast where the story of Esther is still read and kids given rattles. So they can make a loud noise to drown out the wicked name of Haman every time it's mentioned. Listen to 
how things begin to get wrapped up in Esther chapter 9. You can read with me. It's not on the screen. I'll read verses 23 to 28. So the Jews, so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, or Datha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. He had ten sons, Haman did, they were hanged there as well. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these day, two days according to what is written, what was written at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Long after Haman was hanged, Mordecai and Esther continued to flourish in the royal house of King Xerxes. As I said, the king exalted Mordecai to second in command and continued to love his queen. Against all odds, Esther, Mordecai, and the Jewish people had not only been saved, they had been elevated. Just notice the last verse of Esther's story. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. What a story. A dire threat, an evil villain, suspense, you got drama, you got reversals of fortune, you've got poetic justice, you got a happy ending, you got a beautiful heroine, Esther, a name that means star, and she was. It's an amazing story, but back to the question I asked at the beginning of it. What are we to make of the fact that God's hidden in it? Or is he? And if he isn't, then in what ways does God reveal himself in Esther's story? With the few minutes that I have remaining, let me suggest a few ways. The first, in his providence. A providence that begins when a girl loses her parents but is brought up by a godly kinsman. A providence that continues when that same girl with her adoptive guardian are kept in exile in the pagan empire's capital. A providence that shows itself in the downfall of Queen Vashti and the king's decision to have a beauty contest to pick the next queen. A providence at work in the whittling down of literally tens of thousands of women to just one. An orphaned and exiled Jew chosen to be queen. And remember, the contest precludes Haman's edict to exterminate the Jews. But God, knowing the end from the beginning, had already been orchestrating a path of salvation. A providence showing itself with Mordecai, who happened to be in the right place at the right time overhearing a plot against the king, but able to warn him by way of his adopted daughter who is now queen. A providence seen on the night the king can't sleep, and out of all that could have been read to him, what is read has to do with Mordecai being unrewarded. 
And what do we do with the fact that Esther didn't feel comfortable revealing her desires at the first feast, but waited until the second? A 24-hour period that allowed for the insomnia of Xerxes. You see, Westside, the invisible hand of God is evident everywhere in Esther, and the hiddenness of God, I would argue, is intentional. It's an ingenious strategy by the Holy Spirit through the author to have us think deeply about how life's circumstances are ordered to a greater and divine purpose. These are not coincidences that we read about. There are just too many. This is not random. There is a designer. There is a coordinator. There is a power behind all of this. Even though God's name doesn't come up, God roars through the book of Esther. There are no miracles in the book of Esther, but the whole thing is a miracle of divine, divine providence. People, places, times, actions, it's more than miraculous. Not Haman, not Satan using Haman could destroy the people of God, nor put an end to the promises of the preservation of the nation for the coming Messiah and the ultimate salvation of Israel and us. Esther's story is our story. It's a part of our heritage. No one, no matter how they attempt to destroy the people of God and the purpose of God, can succeed because God's covenant love for his people will be fulfilled in Westside. It is being fulfilled. So God shows up in his providence. But when I say that, don't miss the role and responsibility of God's people in the midst of God's providence, which is the second way God is revealed in his people. See, as we know, Esther's beautiful, right? We've made that plainly known. Esther's beautiful. But what stands out more than her outward beauty is the inward beauty she adorned. An adornment that certainly shows itself in her call to have the people of God fast for three days, but most of all in her courageous decision to put her life on the line for the sake of saving many others. Remind you of anybody? Esther's physical beauty may have gotten her the throne, but it was her spiritual adornment that saved a nation. And what about Mordecai? Well, nothing less than a deep-seated devotion to God would have kept him from bowing to Haman. For his decision not to bow to Haman not only could have led to his death, but it in fact set in motion the plan to execute all of God's people. And let's not forget about Mordecai's assurance that God would deliver his people. Mordecai lived a life that took God, as, God at his word. Simple as that. It was his belief in the promises of God, promises of God based on the solidity of God's character that helped him see the possibility of Esther being raised up for a time such as this. So in Esther, God reveals himself over and over and over again in his providence and in his people. And therefore, the story of Esther shows us how to live in a world that many times opposes us, but live in that type of world with courage and integrity 
trusting God, God in his providence to protect and provide even when he seems hidden. There's one more way that God reveals himself in Esther's story, and that is by reminding us of his greater plan and purpose. What do I mean by that? Well, in the beauty of Esther, we are reminded of the church, the bride of Jesus, that will one day be presented, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. In the courage and sacrifice of Esther, we are reminded of Jesus himself who willingly and courageously gave up his life for the sake of his people. I mean, consider what Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. It's not on the screen. Let me just read it for you. Paul writes there, but when the fullness of time had come, as the NLT translates it, at the right time, God sent forth his son to redeem those under the law and receive adoption as sons. A time such as this. In Esther, we are also reminded that the church has an enemy, the pride-filled one who seeks to kill and destroy. One who was second in command to God himself, but his own pride and self-service led him to rebel against God himself. Our chief enemy who raises up minions under him. And in the victory of Esther, a victory that extended to the whole nation, we're reminded of how Jesus' victory is for all people too. So God's all over this one. Everywhere. And I think it's an encouragement to us, especially in the times in which we live. Because it can get discouraging, can it not? I mean, at times, we do live with challenges. All you got to do is turn the TV on, read a newspaper, check out a blog post, pandemic this, acts of terrorism that, great ministries that literally shut down overnight. You can become pretty distressed about the way things are going in a world that seems chaotic at times, troubling at times, even frightening. But such needs not be the case in the kingdom of God and with God's people. You see, in spite of how hidden God can seem at times, to those who belong to him, he's providentially and lovingly ordering our lives for his glory and our joy. Knowing that then, how wonderful it is to live in a time such as this. Let me pray. Bless you. Jesus, uh, we love you. Desperately, we love you. And desperately, we need you. I thank you for Esther and the things that we learned through her story. Thank you for her courage and her example. We thank you for Mordecai and his courage an example, we thank you for how they, in living their lives, evidenced the existence of God. 
I pray that by your spirit, you would give us that same courage to set that same example. So for that reason, we thank you for Esther's story. But more than that, we thank you for Esther's story because of what it reminds us of, a greater story. A greater story that you are writing. A story that gives us courage, not because there are things in us that we can grab onto, but a story you're writing that gives us courage because our hope is found in what you have done. And the promises built on the solidity of your character and that we can live our lives with great assurance in spite of what we see around us and in spite of the times where you do seem hidden and invisible, knowing that you are God who is true to your promises and word and therefore we can stand with great hope in times such as these. Father, I also pray that in the midst of our reflection on Esther's story that perhaps, perhaps there's things that need to rattle our cage a little bit. Perhaps we have bowed down to things that we shouldn't have bowed down to. Perhaps we have become a little self-centered. Perhaps we have a greater tendency to be about our kingdoms than yours. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that in this time of response, whatever those things that you have for us or you're calling us from, that we would respond in ways that are pleasing to you. And as a result of that, that we'd receive your grace and be strengthened and joy-filled so that we would walk out of here further along in our journey with you so that we would be the change agents that you want us to be in the city in which we live, a city that desperately needs you. So I pray that this would be sweet response time where you would be pleased and we would be greatly encouraged and joy-filled. And I pray for these things in the beautiful, sweet name of Jesus. Amen. Would you rise um, as we go and touch?